Well, this is Palm Sunday, and a beautiful Palm Sunday at that. It looks outside like it should. The only difference in this Palm Sunday and all the other ones in my memory is that this is the fewest of my church family that I've spent one with in person. Uh, But when you factor in all the people who may be watching, it might actually be more people. I'm I'm not sure. The Lord knows. And uh, although we're not together, and uh, that's different for us, especially when you're working with a Sunday like this, and next Sunday, I'm sure you have all sorts of memories and traditions involved with that. Um, perhaps we'll talk about this next week, but it's also one of the first Sundays where I, I, I doubt too many people went out and bought a new outfit. Uh, that's usually the way things would work, um, and everybody dressed up and colorful to match the flowers outside. But we are together in that we are united around God's Word. I hope you have your Bible open in your lap and your family around you. And uh, let's begin by reading our passage for today, which begins in chapter 9 of John chapter 12. We'll read this together and then we'll ask for help and then we'll seek to understand it and obey it. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Verse 12, the next day, The large crowds that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see... That you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for its truth, for its ability to change the hearts of men, to make us more like you, less like ourselves. Do that work. Lord, may our eyes be opened. May our ears be opened be opened. May our heart be opened, our mind be opened. Use these things to shape us, teach us, and Lord, to save us. If perhaps today these things come together and someone goes from a state of unbelief or disbelief to believe that you are the Son of God, and may they have life in your name. Thank you for our time together in your word. 
Bless it for your purpose. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, the contents of this passage are very familiar. This is Palm Sunday, and this is the account of what took place as far as John, the evangelist, as we know him, uh, records this gospel story. And if you happen to be working your way through New Morning Mercies, the devotional that so many of you here at Wake Chapel have been using, some of you started that this year, you may have wondered or, or remember yesterday's entry where it warned against the danger of things that are familiar to us. And I thought it worth our time at least to preface everything that's said this morning with that. This is among the most familiar of passages. We go through this annually uh, only to... Uh, 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 The story of Christmas would be more familiar to us, but the story of Easter. The problem with familiarity is that it can sometimes damper our wonder. We get used to something. The awe that once was there fades. So today, the the purpose of going through this, familiar as it is, is to perhaps just go through each of these verses of Scripture and glean from them wonder to put it together to see the story as it happened and to see it from the perspective of one who was there describing what our Lord has done and for our benefit. So the triumphal entry of Jesus appears in all four gospel accounts. That is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And although all the accounts differ in their details, they all agree on the event itself and on the behavior of the crowds. That's what we'll key in on today. One detail important enough to mention here at the beginning, because I believe it will help us with our organizing the material, is to note that John identifies more than one crowd. Actually, three that we read over in the verses that we read, uh, working our way from verse 9 all the way down to verse 19. And if we had left the, the last paragraph off of the, the, or the, the paragraph from the beginning paragraph in chapter 12, which I thought fit better with today than last week, then you'd only have two crowds. But to read them all together, there are three, and they're They're different groups of people. In other words, the word crowd, even great crowd, doesn't refer to the same group of people. And in this case, not even on the same day. So let me at least give you a snapshot of what these three crowds are or who they're made up of. And then as we move through it, you'll see each one distinctive of the others. The first crowd wants to see Jesus. And just as much, they want to see Lazarus. We read through that. That's the distinction. Large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came out, not only on his account, but to see Lazarus as well. So that's the first crowd. The second crowd is made up of a large number of Jewish pilgrims, likely country people, those that don't live in Jerusalem. They're traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And for a time, they would stay there temporarily, but it looks as if these people, made up of the 
crowd we read in second place, they're following Jesus into Jerusalem. And then there's a third crowd. And these are made up of witnesses of what took place with Lazarus. And then another additional number of people that they have told about what happened with Lazarus. And they seem to be coming out of Jerusalem and meeting the crowd that is following Jesus. And at that point, it becomes one large crowd that were two separate crowds at the beginning. So, with that said, let's start looking at these three crowds. We'll organize our thoughts around them. And then at the end, perhaps we'll look at it from another perspective. In these crowds, there are three groups. There are disciples, there are rulers, and then there are just the, the masses. We'll look at it like that. So, back to verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there... He was close by. They came not only on account of him, but also Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing Jesus. So this is its own paragraph. We'll deal with this first. And it's more or less John's conclusion to the things that had happened the day that Jesus uh, feet were anointed by Mary at a dinner that was held in his honor. And um, many of the people that were there were curiosity seekers. They'd come to see this Jesus that they've heard so much about. Maybe they hear that Lazarus has come out of hiding and he's there as well. Uh, somehow the lid comes off. The whereabouts of Jesus is now known. They've come to see both him and Lazarus. What takes place as a result of this, as John's telling us the story, it's added problems for the chief priest, where they had thought that, that what they had been doing was not working, and then they had resolved that Jesus must die. Well, this is on top of that. They haven't been able to arrest Jesus, and they haven't even been able to stop the progression of people that are joining uh, his cause as they see it. So this was a problem too. And because of Lazarus, more people are believing in Jesus. It makes you want to think, okay, what happened to all that political expediency described as it being better that one man die rather than the whole nation? Now it looks like it's better that two men die rather than all the nation. Lazarus is, 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 is making this worse, so we'll kill him too. And when I was younger, I thought, well, he was dead already, and now he's alive. What good is it going to be to kill him again? It'd probably be just as easy to raise him the second time, and that would be worse for these people. But this is the way they decide to handle things. And then follows the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem the Sunday before his crucifixion. That's what we, where we pick up in verse 12. And just an advertisement for expositional teaching through a book study. This book was chosen over a year ago. And we took a break last summer. But where do we wind up on Palm Sunday? 
than the triumphal entry of Jesus. It just seems to work out more often than not. And this is probably one of the best demonstrations of such a thing. So the rulers have attempted to take Jesus into custody multiple times so far, we've been learning. They've even issued a warrant for Christ's arrest, threatening anyone who knew where he was to report it. But now, after dismissing himself, hiding away, he walks right into it. Of his own volition, entering the city for the last time, this is none other than what John has been telling us is coming. This is his hour. He'd been telling us it was coming. He'd been saying, it's, it's not time yet. Well, it's time now. His hour had come. So verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast... Notice the way that's described. They're coming to the feast. They're not there where the feast is. These are not locals. Heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So just some background here. The population of Jerusalem was estimated to have been around 250,000 in Jesus' day. But that number could swell to 1 million during the Passover. In fact, we've got records closer to the time right before Israel's destruction from Rome, this is Josephus writing, that during Passover there might have been as many as 2.7 million people in the city. So John referring to this large crowd here really only amounts to a drop in the bucket compared to the people who are packing into Jerusalem because of the Passover feast. And if you consider Jesus himself, he's one in a million in this setting. So, moving on to verse 13. They took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we read from Psalm 118. And then added to that, even the king of Israel. So, if you add all this together, they, that's the crowd, those who make up this crowd specifically, have taken palm branches. This is from the date palm, most likely. That was a national symbol. They even had it stamped on their coins. John is the only one who specifies this type of branches. The other three gospel authors just say branches, but not which type. It's obvious, perhaps, if you follow Matthew's record, that Jesus is coming through Jericho. That's the city of palms. Maybe that's where many of these people began to strip these branches off. I would not have liked to have just planted a nice looking palm tree with uh, a group that are gathering as a million people come by and each one of them has to have their own. So they're gathering these palm branches, they're waving them in the air, they're shouting Hosanna, which translates, give salvation now. And another case of people saying more than they realize. Just by side note, John would tell us palm branches like this would show up again in Revelation 7. In the hands of another multitude gathered around a throne. That's all for later. In addition to the Hosannas, they were also calling out the standard 
Passover greeting, which we read earlier. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only the greeting is focused on Jesus with an additional phrase, even the king of Israel. So they're saying what they all know, part of the Hallel. They've all been singing this since they were children at this point in the year. But they're adding this phrase on the end of it, which makes us understand, undoubtedly, they are assigning to Jesus royalty. They consider him a royal figure. They think they've got themselves a king. Now, how much traction they think they can gather with this we're not sure but later downstream this crowd is going to gather with another crowd on their way into Jerusalem making quite a fuss now I didn't mention I don't think that these would be sung maybe I did say they were sung psalms were supposed to be sung the psalms of ascent to the temple so these hosannas weren't just something they would chant. These are things that they would sing. And all the Jews knew it. It wasn't as if anybody had to learn it. They already know it. It's like singing something as familiar as Christmas carols. We all know those. And so did they. Not Christmas carols, but they're psalms. So I'm wondering, with what I know of Jewish culture so far removed by a couple of centuries and uh, an Atlantic Ocean. But I know enough to know that they don't sing what they sing quietly. Um, if given, the, if this is a quiz and you were you know, checking boxes, would you check? They probably sang like medieval monks in a monotone, low voice. Or was it more like soccer fans in a big arena where they stand up and sing the whole time? I think it's probably like that. Because they've got a king, they think. Why would this be boring? They're going to sing to the top of their lungs. And as they sing, like any crowd of people singing, you've watched movies, someone starts singing, everybody starts singing. And the more people sing, the louder the sound, the more encouraged you are to contribute to it. So this is beginning to gain volume. And as the next crowd moves in, it's all the same, bigger and louder, more excited, more exuberant. Um, imagination is all we've got to put ourselves in that place but I think we're well served to use it. Up until now, Jesus has not himself made the claim of kingship publicly. Though many who had witnessed his signs and heard his teachings were convinced of it, I'm sure. Countless others would have been ready to crown him on the spot, and they had done so before, for something as simple as a free meal. He had to hide he would not let that happen. He was not to be their king, not like that. But at this point, only now that his hour has come, he does not reject the acclamation of these gathering crowds. And as a result, it seems their enthusiasm knows no bounds. Some of them, I'm sure, may have been at the feeding of the 5,000. 
They may have been among the people that left after it was over. Now they're back, perhaps. Another gospel writer, this is Matthew's account, would tell us that there was a command given to silence all that exuberance. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. More on that next week. But let's pause for just a minute. And I only do this to make sure you're, you're thinking your way through this. this. This can get complicated. It doesn't need to. And if we'll think our way through it, uh, we'll get through it with a better understanding. But how do you square what we've already read before we get to the next crowd? Who are waving palm branches, singing Hosanna, augmenting what they've sang for so long by adding even the king of Israel and attributing that to Jesus. How do you square that with five days down the road where they trade in their hosannas for crucify him? Because you may have been of the understanding or taught or just assumed all your life this is the same crowd. But think your way through that. There's a million people gathering We've already looked at three separate crowds. One crowd on one day, two crowds on another day. This will be five days later. Surely this crowd is going to make some adjustments. Minus a few, add a few. You've got the restrictions there in front of Pilate as far as space goes. We would assume not all of them would be able to be there. In addition to that, you're going to have the chief priest through the crowds, stirring them up the same way with, with, with the thing that happens when people get together. What mobs are good at doing, repeating what they're hearing. The sentiment will be totally different. How do we get from one sentiment to the other sentiment? Or really is the same sentiment underlying it all? And that is that each of these people will accept or reject this king based on what they think a king should be rather than accepting or rejecting this king based on who God says he should be. That's going to serve us well toward the end of this. And as to who was there and which crowd at what time and were they the very same people that would say two different things five days apart? Very possible. But the exact same crowd? No, there's way more crowds. Crowds are quite dynamic. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion, or daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So... Um, this is one of the reason why, reasons why in uh, Sunday school when you're a child on Palm Sunday, usually John's account's not the one the teacher uses because he has just skipped over all the details involving acquiring the donkey and sending the disciples and the man who, who owned the, the animal and all that. None, none of it's here with John. He skipped over it all as if it doesn't fit his purpose, which is the precisely the right answer now what does fit his purpose is to tell us 
that the riding a donkey into the city was in fulfillment of prophetic scripture, which is pre-written history. So John is going to leave those other details to the other gospel writers because he's focusing, training our attention on something else more specific. So what we have to answer, what does that prophecy mean exactly and why is it important? If John is highlighting this, and the others did too, but purposefully leaving out things that might catch our attention, then what is he trying to tell us? Jesus was a new kind of king. That's obvious from this prophetic passage. One that Israel had never seen. There had been kings that were good kings, faithful kings, humble kings, but ultimately only pointing to who Jesus would be. And no one here at this point had understood that yet. If they had understood the king they were dealing with, they would have thrown him aside like they'd done times before and like they would ultimately do days later. They would rather have a king ride in on a stallion stirring up insurrection against the Romans. That, that was likely, uh, if you were to poll the audience there, at the top of the list for what they're looking for in a king. Savior from Rome, not Savior from sin. This is the difference between every other monarch and the Prince of Peace. It's where we get that term. They wanted a king with a sword. The only sword that Jesus would introduce would be division between belief and unbelief. He said he's not here to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. But he did say he was here to judge. And the judgment's only between whether or not this is really him, God's son, to take away the sin of the world or not. People would divide on that line. The sword would be thrust into the middle and Division would come in two parts, believers and unbelievers. These themes have been recurring over and over again as we've read through this gospel. Let's look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. What things? How the prophecy fit in. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this is another editorial comment from John. But just feature this. We're trying to read this and understand it, familiar as it is. We know it very well. But he's telling a story of how it went the first time it occurred in real time as it happened. And he's saying that even he, at that point, didn't match all this up. It never occurred to them as they're on their way to go get a donkey that there's a passage from the Old Testament that says that this is how it'll happen. They hadn't added all this up yet. And they wouldn't add it up until he was glorified. That means not just dead, buried, risen, but ascended into heaven. When the Holy Spirit was given, the Holy Spirit allowed them to understand these things. So sometimes we, we look at this and we forget the fact that they had missed it too. 
Later, John would tell us that when the Holy Spirit came, he would lead believers into all truth. We'll read that later as we study. But verse 16 is an example of that very thing. The disciples did not understand what these things meant as they happened, even as they were a part of them. But they would later after Jesus was gone. And the same is true for us. The meaning of Jesus and his gospel are not open to every person walking around on the planet today. The Holy Spirit has to draw them. The Holy Spirit has to connect the dots. We have to tell them the truth. As we preach and teach, God's living word falls on their ears, goes into their brain and into their heart. The Holy Spirit comes along and only then do all the pieces fit together and they're reborn. So even for the disciples, they're still piecing these things together. You might even go as far as to say that the disciples had more in common with the crowds at this point. And with the crowds, thought of Jesus as king in an incomplete sense. Maybe even to say a wrong sense. After the Holy Spirit's coming, they thought of him as king in the right sense. But a lot of correction is yet to take place. So it seems John's point, here's to go back to a previous thought and try to tie it together. What does the prophecy mean exactly? And why is it important? It seems John's point in only describing Jesus finding and riding the donkey is to focus our attention on the response of Jesus to the praise of the people. Remember, this is the first time that Jesus has allowed them to call him a king without disappearing. He's not disappearing. He's purposefully riding right into the middle of the city where days later he's going to be crucified. So John is taking this and showing us how does this king respond to a group of people that call him such? What are they expecting? A big horse, a big sword, stirring up a revolt. Let's get this party started. That's what they're excited about. That's what they're saying, bring the salvation now. That's why they're waving palm branches. So what does Jesus do? Well, John takes this story of the crowd and over against it, he compares the response of the king and how does that king ride into town on a donkey? The symbol of humility. Jesus accepts his role as king, but as it was laid out for him by his father, not as it is laid out for him by these Jews. How was it laid out for him by his father? Well, from centuries earlier ago, it was laid out in prophecy. He'll ride in on a donkey. And pictured in prophecy is the reign of the humble king of peace and justice, riding on a beast of burden. Now, from time to time in my studies, I run across a paragraph I just couldn't improve on if I had my life to do it. This is from Herman Ritterboss, another of my favorite commentators and scholars that I read in preparation for these sermons. Here's the way he put this from his explanation on this passage. It is in that form to which Jesus again gives expression that he accepts the last stretch of the road on which he must go to receive rule over his people from the hands of God. No one in Jerusalem but Jesus. 
Neither his disciples, nor the crowd, nor the rulers of Israel understood that he entered Jerusalem sitting on a donkey to receive that kingship and as the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. For that reason, the story of the triumphal entry, particularly in John's presentation of it, is the story of Jesus' hidden glory. Not glory on the outside, but glory hidden. The deep meaning of which only the progress of the events of salvation would disclose. In other words, it will not make sense until it's finished. And for some people, even today, the gospel as they know it is not finished. It it doesn't add up. It's not complete. It hasn't made sense. The Holy Spirit hadn't pulled it all together. They've still got more information to hear. Verse 17. Here's the third crowd. We've, We've read the first and the second. The first was on the day prior. The second was the group following out of Jericho and on their way to Jerusalem. They're following Jesus. And on the road, but still outside the city, as best we understand, verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, remember those were mourners that were there, family members, many people went out to see Mary and Martha. And when Jesus was there... Both of them met him some distance from the house, and then they went to the tomb. Well, there's a lot of people there. And listen what they did. They continued to bear witness. They've been telling people since it happened. It's about a month worth of time. A lot of people have uh, responded to this and want to see more. So verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard the things he'd done. That he'd done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are going to do or gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So let's take this in two chunks. We've got another crowd that's coming out of Jerusalem, meeting the crowd that's coming from Jericho. Those two crowds will combine, and that larger now combined crowd is heading into Jerusalem. And the reason why those additional people have come in is because of the witnessing that they've heard over the resurrection of Lazarus. So those that had seen what Jesus did with Lazarus were moved to tell others what they'd seen. And this is fantastic. They would no longer allow themselves to be intimidated by the rulers who said, if you know where he is, you need to tell us. They wouldn't be suppressed. They wouldn't be quiet. They told people. And they, as such, serve as models for all who bear witness to the truth. There's, there's some evangelistic uh, pep talks involved in that one verse right there. John tells us that was the reason why the crowd went looking for Jesus. The reason why people go looking for Jesus is because other people tell him about it. Which is what we should be doing. Verse 12 The multitude seemed to be the Galilean crowd that's following Jesus as they streamed into Jerusalem. Here it seems the crowd from Jerusalem is coming out of the city to meet the procession before Jesus arrives in town. The whole mob combines on the road outside the city limits. So there's a picture in our mind as to what's happening. So let's look at what the Pharisees had to say. The convergence of this massive crowd now crowd of pilgrims from long distances along with supporters from inside Jerusalem made for a massive following that caused the rulers to become much more afraid. 
Their fear is realized in that their efforts to stop Jesus have been too few and too late. Now, if you look back at that sentence in verse 19, there's two parts to it. The first part of the sentence points to a complete failure as to their efforts. You see that you are gaining nothing. And then the second part points to the great success of Jesus. Look, the world has gone out after him. That's a bad day for these rulers. And this is how desperate men talk when they're preparing to make a last-ditch effort. Now what's sad, and here's where I want to begin to draw a conclusion. What's sad is the chief priest's exaggerated use of the term world. Now surely they don't mean the whole population of the planet. That's one definition of the word world, but world can be used in an exaggerated sense to communicate all sorts of things. Um, you might hear somebody say, I hate blah, blah, blah in the whole world. Not really. They're just exaggerating. Well, that's what they're doing here, but what's significant is the use of that term and how it's been used in passages closely connected to the one we're reading today, where the chief priests are concerned with those of the Judean province, likely. This is all the people that are coming into town. That's what they mean by this. All of them are going to be going after Jesus. Look, the world has gone after him. So, you've got that on the one hand, their definition of what world means. But up until now, John has been using the same word to refer to the likes of all human beings who are lost in darkness and in much need of light, right? He's been talking about the world living in darkness. He's been talking about a God who loved the world so much that he gave his son so that they didn't have to perish if they believed. And what these people are saying, these scribes and Pharisees, again, you just I mean, make a whole list of these things. They're saying way more than they realize, right? Their world is much smaller. Jesus' world is much bigger. There is absolutely no risk of entanglement with Rome. That's what they're really worried about. It's, it's not so much the crowd in Jesus they're worried about. It's the crowd in Rome noticing it, seeing it as an insurrection, and laying waste to them all. Not this time. That's not going to happen because that's not why Jesus is here. It'll happen later, but not this at all. There's absolutely no risk of it. And where they're so worried and why they resolved to kill Jesus was described in that meeting closed doors. Do you remember it? They said Rome might come and take away our place and our nation. Remember that? We've got to get rid of this Jesus. If we don't, Rome could come and take away our place and our nation. That's their world. That really is the extent of their world. They couldn't care less about a Gentile. They hated them. They had no time for them. As far as they were concerned, they completely and totally threw away 
any hope they had of knowing the one true God. And they weren't interested in telling them. So their world consists of their place and their nation. That's the extent of their definition of the world. But Jesus wasn't concerned with such material things. If you recall, in reference to that place, the temple that they're so worried about losing, he said one day, there wouldn't be one stone left on another. Right? So what Jesus was concerned with was a world in darkness that needed the light of the world. A world of people that he made himself that were living in rebellion to his father. Sinners on whom his father's wrath had been stored up against. They're worried about their place and their nation being taken away. That's not what Jesus is here to take away. What he's here to take away is the sins of those whom he's made and whom his father has given to him as a possession for himself. So as we noticed last week, the more you read of John, the more things come into focus. Where in the beginning he's talking about uh, very distant terms, very abstract, light and darkness. And this light who's come into the darkness as the light of the world. Now we're able to assign meaning to those abstractions in the hardest of concrete terms. Jesus is here as the king according to his father's terms. Not as the king according to the terms of the mob. When this crowd finds out he's not the king they're looking for. They will turn on him. The Pharisees already have. They've already, in a way, done this when they didn't get fed the next day after the feeding of the 5,000. And folks, we need to be cautious to not put ourselves in that group. We might fit in that group more than we actually know. Many years ago, trying to think of the date now, as far as uh, my age, I think it'd be uh, a few weeks before my 23rd birthday. And I hadn't been at uh, Pleasant Grove, which is the first church that I was privileged to serve. I hadn't been there, but maybe a little over a year. But when... September the 11th of 2001 happened. A day that we'd never forget. The next Sunday, the church that was about half full, as far as the seating capacity, at about 60, was full that next Sunday. And uh, I think we might even had a few guys standing up in the back. And it stayed that way. Almost. The next week was a, a, a little bit less. But about a month later, we were about like we were before it happened. The, the same 60 people, regular. The big question was not, why do people need Jesus during a national crisis? The big question was, why did they only need him for a month? 
evidently because their definition of King Jesus didn't meet their standards of what a king should be or what they needed him to be. So when the crisis is over, thank you for the help, but I've got it from here. If you don't need Jesus as a sinner first, then you probably don't need Jesus at all. He's not here to feed you. He's not here to heal you physically, if not to heal you spiritually. All the things that we think we want him to do for us are only temporal. There's only one thing that Jesus can do for us, the reason why he came to this planet, that will last past our last breath, and that is to save us from our sins. John introduced him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he's here. That's why he rides in on a donkey, not on a stallion. And after we've looked at three different crowds, and we'll look at other crowds in the weeks to come, maybe it'd probably be better for us to just look at the groups that were within those crowds. There were the masses, of course. There were the rulers who hated Jesus and wanted him dead. They feared Rome. Then there were his disciples. One of them would forsake him more dramatically than the others. They all forsook him and fled. But then they turned the world upside down later after the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. And we're reading their works today. Where do we fit in all this? Salvation has always been and will always be on God's terms even down to the details of how he entered the city the last week he was alive on this earth, before his resurrection. Every single day of our lives, our spirituality grows or dies based on whether or not we're following him according to his terms or our own if we just analyze our prayers, we'll understand how selfish we can be. We've got to see him for who he is. He's here for our sins. And once he is our savior and we are his own, the adoption is complete, then all the fringe benefits of being part of the family are lavished on us. But they are results. That's not where it starts. It starts at, I repent, I believe, you're the son of the living God. It doesn't start, what can you do for me? And I'll see whether or not you're useful to me. That's not how it ever works. So Jesus leaves that major division, and we're headed toward that point of no return. There's belief, and there's unbelief. John wrote it. That's his whole premise. These are written that you might believe. And that whole story is against the backdrop of massive unbelief. The story is the same today. Even as we meet over an electronic connection, we as the children of God are in a minority. Believers in a world of unbelief. So with that said... We've got a lot to think about. And um, 
We've got more of our Palm Sunday to spend with each other, our families, and uh, perhaps uh, with Zoom connections this evening with uh, other groups within the church. But let's, uh, let's pray over what we've studied. I have a benediction to read, and then I'm actually going to close with another prayer. But let's, let's pray just now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for the ability to see in the behavior of others character traits of our own behavior. Lord, may we accept our king as his father sent him to us. Humble and riding on a donkey. Lord, that suffering servant is payment for our sins. We thank you for the grace we have in Jesus. Lord, I ask that if anyone is putting these things together, that you, by the Holy Spirit, complete the picture, save their soul, turn them into a witness, like those that were telling others as to what you did with Lazarus. Lord, thank you for our time together in your word. May it sink down deep and make a lasting difference. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, again, as our benediction, let me read to you one verse from Isaiah. And then a special prayer that we'll use to close. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The way this is described, Jesus took care of our sins in his own body. His body was crushed in payment for our sins. And while here on this earth, Jesus' spirit and his body was connected. The same is true with us. Our spirits, under this situation we live in, are uh, bearing the weight of all sorts of disappointments. It's also affecting people in their bodies. This is a, a, a sickness, a disease that we're, we're worried about concerned about. So this is a prayer, it's a liturgy, a pre-written prayer, and it's adapted out of every moment holy. But this prayer is for doctors and for health care uh, professionals, even volunteers, those on the front lines of uh, actually uh, putting themselves at risk to make sure that we do right by our neighbor and take care of the situation we find ourselves in. So, let's pray. Christ our healer, there is no end to malady, to sickness, to injury, and disease in this broken world. So there's no end to the line of hurting people who daily need the care of others. Therefore, give our doctors healthcare professionals and volunteers grace that they may be generous with their kindness 
that in the healing and caretaking vocation, their hands might become an extension of your hands and their service a conduit for your mercy. For it is often not an easy place to be near to suffering, injury, to pain, emergency, fear, confusion, even to dying and death and grief. But may they believe it is exactly the sort of place you would be. Among those who hurt. So let the practice of medicine be centered in an understanding of your heart first. Let them practice medicine because you are a healing God who feels compassion and extends mercy. Let them practice medicine because you are near to those who are in need, to those who face grief and loss. Let them practice medicine as a willing servant of your redemption, pushing back by means of their vocation even the effects of the fall. Let their presence in this world lend a human face to your love and compassion. Lord, they can do none of these things on their own. Apart from your grace, they have no grace to give. So give them your grace in greater measure. Give them grace this day and all days that they might serve you well by loving and serving others in their healing work, ever laboring in new in view of that day when your kingdom will be fully realized at the great mending of the world and the great ending of all ills. Let them play a part in that great work. Lord, be with them this coming week. Give them what they need. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.